since there was no babysitter, since she knew she could not take the two-year-old with her on the horse, she tied Katie to the bedpost, put a few of her favorite things there, and she jumped on that horse, bareback of course, and went off to find her husband, leaving that two-year-old tied to the bedpost. She found her husband, she found the group, they went to Walnut Grove, got, they got there in time to save the house from being burned. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we have Sheila Engel, a South Carolina uh, historian and author. In several of her books that she has written, one of those on today's episode is going to be Courageous Kate. Tell us a little bit about why you started to write about Kate Berry. I was teaching the children's lit. I've become a member of the Kate Berry chapter DAR. I'm very nosy when it comes to history. Right. I know there's backstory. I know there's backstory because we live in a world of backstories, do we not? And yeah, so yeah. you know it's back there somewhere. And so one Sunday afternoon, I was had had it with the stack of papers that I was grading for exams. And so I said, John, let's get out of here. Let's go down to uh, Walnut Grove. He said, okay, we'll go. And so we went down there. I'd never been there in my entire life. Here, we live here. It's maybe five miles from our house. Lived in Spartanburg, nope, had not. And so we went down there and I walked on those grounds and the lady started taking us around and I mean, what, it's what in, is that? It is a plantation house, manor house, here in Spartanburg County. It's in the Roebuck area. It's right off the interstate. There's a big sign on the interstate. You can't miss it. Off the interstate 26. It's 26, right, and it's Walnut Grove. And it's been here since 1765. It was built in 1765. By so was it a plantation back then? It was a plantation, loosely a plantation did not have slaves, uh, the upcountry did not have the same kind of lifestyle that the low country did. Everything the is money, kind of overshadowed with the Civil War, right? But exactly. Really, when we get into the backcountry right. and we're talking about what later became plantations at the time of the Revolutionary War, these were really just farms. Exactly. Right. Big farms. Big farms. Uh, on 500 and something acres. He had a land grant. Charles Moore received a land grant and it was huge. It was on the Tiger River but he was not the only one that received that kind of land grant. There were also 11 other families that moved down from North Carolina with him with him and his family. And in order to uh, work that land, you had to have big extended families. Exactly. Exactly. Hence the 8, 10, 12 16 children that they had and everybody worked yes so you went out to walnut grove and, and you just got overcome with what with walking where they walked okay that's what it was like um something i wrote after i finished the book was walk a mile in kate's shoes and that's what it was like just walking on those grounds um i i don't know that i can really explain it except to say that, that it was quiet, number one, it was quiet. You think about where we live, it doesn't matter where we live, but there's noise somewhere, you can't get away from it. Right. Just, it's impossible. 
But there, for some reason, I don't know if it's all the trees that surround the property or the, I don't know. It's, it's an ambiance of quiet. And knowing that when they were living back then, it wasn't quiet because people were working all over the place and doing this, that, and the other. There were hammers going, there was a blacksmith doing his thing, all those, all that. But there was something about it that just, um, it touched my heart in really? some way. Yeah. It really did. And I walked away from there when John and I left. I said, somebody needs to write her story. That is an amazing woman. Nobody has told her story. And I said, I'm going to tell her story. And I said, and it's going to be called Courageous Kate because she was so courageous. And that sort of led me into these other women that I've written about. I've only written about women. I mean, that's they're the focus. It's the biography of them because they were ordinary, okay. but they lived extraordinary lives, right. in my opinion. Right. Every, every time they got up in the morning, they, they didn't know what was going to happen. You know, it, it was just, could be somebody on their front steps with uh, a rifle, or could be, it, they just didn't know. And they took over for their husbands. They were doing both roles during the Revolutionary War here and did it well, did it very well. And I was just, I'm still impressed with them. And just out of curiosity, isn't one of her descendants a famous actress? Yes, she is. In fact, if anybody can reach back in their memory a little bit and find the program Gunsmoke that was uh, part of black and white when I was growing up. So that dates me very nicely. But Miss Kitty, the lady that played that particular part is a descendant of Kate Berry. Kate was the oldest of 10 children of Charles and Mary Moore. They came down to South Carolina as it is now from Anson County, North Carolina. They rode in a Conestoga wagon. They came with 11 other families. They'd been given land grants and they settled on the Tiger River. Uh, the Tiger River, there are three Tiger Rivers as a matter of fact in Spartanburg County, but they settled on the middle Tiger River. And all the families, uh, their land grants went along the river. So when they got here, it was woods, it was forest, it, it was grazing land, it was a place of um, so many animals. Uh, in fact, so many animals because it was the Cherokee hunting grounds when they moved in. And you can imagine how excited the Cherokee might have been to have these 11 other families come in and start housekeeping on their land. They were not happy. There were no real major uh, conflicts between the Cherokee and the family. Everybody sort of gave people their own space. But they, I, the reason I'm saying that, they started from nothing. You're, we're looking at a place where deer were in the hundreds, where buffalo were in the thousands, where there were 50-pound turkeys, if you can imagine. It was just a lush, a very lush part of the United States. And so they started with nothing. It took approximately anywhere from 60 to 80 trees to cut down and plane and do what they needed to do to build a one-room cabin back then. You think about that. 
that is labor intensive as far as I'm concerned. And we're looking at axes and, you know, saws and that kind of thing. They couldn't do it by themselves. And those movies and those TV programs that we've seen, you know, about where everybody got together and did the barn raising or the house raising, that's what they did. And so they helped each other. And it was a major community together. And all of these families were Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. What they does that mean? Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. Okay. There we go. James I, James VI of Scotland, James I of England, he set up a place in Northern Ireland, got Scottish people to come over and live there. And when he did that, they of course stayed and they became Scotch-Irish because they have the Scottish background, of course, DNA, and they were living in Ireland. They learned the Irish language, all that. And so it, they were like a separate group, but they were a separate group mainly not because of their background, but because of their religion. Which king was this? This is James I, also this, known as James VI. Is this the King James Version of the Bible? You've got it. That's exactly right. Okay. Same man. And he was trying to um, enhance his land as far as that goes. I mean, he was king of England and he was king of Scotland, but he wanted Ireland too. So he was. this was the way he worked it. And so time went on and there got to be such a, um, a conflict between the Scotch-Irish and the English. The English had the money. They were the landowners. We have got the Scotch-Irish that are working for the landowners. The Scotch-Irish became more prevalent. There were more of them. The English started putting more laws on them to keep them what I call under their thumb. Uh, it got to the point in the 1700s where they didn't want the Presbyterians to uh, worship in their own churches. They wanted them to do house worship, home worship. Uh, they wouldn't let them have land. They were having to be in tenant farmer. They couldn't hold public office. They did their rents up to the point that they were in a place where sometimes it was food or pay the rent. And so they decided they needed to leave Ireland and they did in droves. For years there would come like waves of them to America because free land in so many places and if not free land, land that was reasonable enough so they could buy it and they could call it their own. And that was really part of the seeds it seems like that brought the Revolutionary War on into it because the king was trying to take that land away from them. And he was doing it bit by bit, by taxes and by this and by that and all those things. And that land was theirs. That land was theirs and it was very important. So they came for freedom of religion because they were getting bashed as far as being Presbyterians were concerned. They came for a place where they could live. Their children could have a place where they could live and make a living. So that's the influx of the Scotch-Irish. And I'll, in fact, all three of these books that I've written, these chapter books that I've written about the upcountry were Scotch-Irish families. I found that amazing after the fact, but they were. So Kate was the first one. Uh, two specific instances about her that grabbed my attention that day that the lady told us. 
she married one of the other uh, families that had come down here with them in those kind of stuggle wagons, a man by the name of Andrew Berry. They married, they, he already had his land about two miles from Walnut Grove where she finished growing up and where she married from and her parents lived. And there was one Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Monday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, we don't really know. I've, in my book, I had it Sunday afternoon. She was on the porch with four of her children and doing this, the things that women do it, when no idle hands back then, just no idle hands. There was always something to do. If there wasn't spinning, weaving, knitting, something they were doing, to, churning butter, whatever it was. She had four young children, the oldest was eight. John was the oldest at that point in time. Polly and Charles and then baby Katie. She was still in a crib. But coming across um, their property and onto their property came this group of Tories. What's a Tory? Tory, okay. That would be a group of men, women, family, whatever, that supported King George. Okay. This family, the Moors, were patriots. The Berries were patriots. In fact, all of these 12 families were patriots. There was no differing as far as within the family or anything else. They all were that. And of course, our moniker of patriot wasn't even used back then. It was Whigs. Exactly. Correctly. So, so the Berries and the Moors, they see these Tories coming across the yard, and then what? They come on horseback. They line up in front of her porch. Almost all the houses had some sort of stoop or porch at that particular point in time. Uh, you'll see that at Walnut Grove if you go to visit, that the porch is still there. Um, and the fact that there was a man by the name of Captain Elliot, don't know his first name, he was Captain Elliot, and he wanted to know where her husband was. And of course he wanted to know that because her husband was a captain of the Spartan regiment, Spartan militia, if you will. Militia being, of course, those soldiers that gave up their time without any kind of pay or anything like that to defend their property and those around them. And that, so he was captain, so that was a big deal. And Kate was a scout and spy for her husband. But this man knew that she would know supposedly where her husband was and he wanted information so he went to the porch he stomped up the steps asked her very impolitely where her husband was she told him she didn't know you can quibble about whether she lied or whether she told the truth she i believe she was probably telling the truth how is she supposed to know where they were you know on a particular day on a, of the week, you know, right. they they had responsibilities. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing, which was protecting the land, going back to the land again. <clears throat> and he did not accept that answer from her. There she is again with those four children. He grabs her arms behind her back, ties them together, and ties her to one of the porch stops there, uh, post. And he asks her again. She replies, I don't know. And he hit her three times. He hit her in front of her children, and she kept telling him that she didn't know. Why he stopped after that, anybody's guess. My opinion is that he realized he wasn't going to get an answer from her. 
Mm-hmm. Not an answer that he wanted or he could use or anything like that. And he was getting maybe a little bit frustrated in front of the men that were with him that he was not getting any kind of results. And he said, well, we don't need you anyway, and we'll just go on and find him ourselves. He marched off and they went away. Just listening to the docent there tell that story about her made me think of how many women went through so much during the war on their own porch, in their own yard, wherever they were. They were soldiers too. We don't hear about these women, but they they were. We know what that kind of thing means. And she defended her home, she defended her children, and she defended her husband with those words of I don't know. That's all part of the family story. I was given the family papers to write this book, which really Uh, There's a lot that's factual. They've got um, wills that are available and part of them and that kind of thing. But so often in reading through it, tradition says, our story goes, those kinds of words. Because not knowing going down eight or nine generations exactly how it happened, why it happened, when it happened, who was involved, but a snippet here and a snippet there is what you get. And that's just one of the stories about Kate. That it's a fascinating story, it really is. And it does tell a story or tells the uh, experiences of life on the frontier for the, for the families. And you can say you're in the militia and you can go back to the pension records and, and look at the men that are in the militia that actually put their name into paper that, that is recorded for history or memorialized. And that's not everybody that, that fought by any stretch of the imagination. But what we don't hear and what you have done so good in illustrating is the families of these militiamen who were there left alone and the British know who they are. Exactly. The British know where they're gonna come back to. In fact, you have spies all over South Carolina for the British side that are keeping tabs on when these militia men are coming back home. That's why at Huck's defeat, you saw Huck going up into after the McClure's and the, the Brattons because they had heard that the Brattons and the McClure's had come back home. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same is true here. You have, when, when they talk about a civil war in South Carolina, this is the original civil war. Exactly. Where you have neighbor informing on neighbor. It, is, uh, it was brutal, and so brutal that Nathaniel Green even talked about it later on when he came down here, saying he didn't expect uh, there to be uh, a force for either side at the end of this thing mm-hmm. because they were killing each other so uh, rampantly. Right, right back. and left, as right I would say, yeah. yes. So um, were there any other characters involved? There was Charles and Mary Moore, her parents, and her, their other, her other siblings. It's understood that the uh, militia, they met and they mustered up, it was the word, they had a muster every two or three weeks, and they had it there at Walnut Grove. And if you go there and you visit, you'll see this huge expanse in front of the house, and that's probably where they had the muster every week. So even though he was like in his 50s, 
uh, Charles Moore, the father, during this particular time, so he did not fight, was not involved in the militia. He was still helping, and he is listed as a Revolutionary War ancestor as far as DAR and all those other places are concerned because of that. So those families, the church was very important. Um, you might have heard of Nazareth Presbyterian Church today. All these families started that particular church. It was called the Tiger River, Tiger River Meeting House. And uh, they called it a meeting house. They did. They and didn't that call was it in churches. order to get away from the regulation of the British. Exactly. Right? Another way, another small way. It was a church by any other name. It they, was. They had to call it a meeting house. Exactly. A church, a meeting house, a home, you know, I mean, it could be anywhere. And if you think about it, when they first met, they were meeting in homes. Right. That, that's what they did. But when they first got here, there was nothing else. And it's interesting, the story about that Nazareth Presbyterian Church. They started at each end of the Tiger River. The family at, on the north end, the family at the south, southern end. And they walked one, one particular day, probably a Sunday, and they walked until they met. And that's where they built their first meeting house, was right there in the middle. And I think that is so intriguing that they thought, you know, so nobody had too far to walk. Because we're looking at walking, we're looking at riding in a cart, maybe a wagon, you know. And so everybody could get there. That's what they chose to do. So there's another story about Cape Berry that you have. Yes, I do. This happened after Yorktown, after the British decided that they could not fight us anymore. I won't put it that way. But, but the, the, the Revolutionary War was still going on in South exactly. Carolina. It was two more years after that particular signing there at Yorktown, that's true. It was, a t it was a tough time. There was a time of retribution going it on was, in South Carolina. It was, and that's exactly the part of the st her story that I wanted to s remind myself about, too. A man by the name of Bloody Bill Cunningham, he was on a rampage all over South Carolina, mainly here in the upstate because that's where he had been, he and his family had been, um, done wrong as far as he was concerned. And so he was going around with the comeuppance in his hat and uh, destroying property. He was killing, he was hanging people that were uh, patriots, Whigs. Uh, he was just doing what all he could. And in November of 1781, he went to Walnut Grove with his men bound to burn it and destroy whatever was going on there. Kate being, as I mentioned a while ago, a couple of miles, their house was a couple of miles across the river from Walnut Grove. Again, the quiet. She heard commotion. She heard commotion. She knew she needed to get to her husband, who of course he was with his militia group, and he knew she knew that Walnut Grove needed their help as far as defense was concerned. Well, her children weren't there at the house except for the baby Katie, who was two years old. And the story goes that since there was no babysitter, since she knew she could not take the two-year-old with her on the horse, she tied Katie to the bedpost 
put a few of her favorite things there, and she jumped on that horse, bareback of course, and went off to find her husband, leaving that two-year-old tied to the bedpost. She found her husband, she found the group. They went to Walnut Grove. Got, they got there in time to save the house from being burned. They fought with Bloody Bill and his men. They drove them off, but before they drove them off, there was a Whig soldier that had been wounded. He was recovering upstairs in the house. The soldiers went up the stairs. They shot him dead. He had two visitors there this morning who were able to get out of the house, whether they jumped out a window or whatever they did, but they were shot not far from the house by Bloody Bill's men. And so the first three deaths as far as the Revolutionary War in that area, in the yard or in the home there at Walnut Grove. And those three men are buried in the cemetery there at Walnut Grove. There's a family cemetery and they are buried there. The thing is though, that even though they did that damage, they were turned away and they left. Can I say that they ran from the Spartan militia? Can I just well, put it that let's, way? Let's do this. <laughs> Bloody Bill Cunningham did not just do this on his own. No. He had a group of men. Yes, he did. And when they would show up, people were in awe at their numbers and they didn't come to have tea. No. So they had an agenda. They had an agenda and they this was not their first stop. And this would not be their last stop, but they certainly got drove away and did not come back here. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So I think you could say that they ran, but they did They did do some damage while they were here. They did. Sure. Any other stories? Those, were, those are the two main ones that okay. get, that you see her involved in the Rev War and being very active. She did purposely, as I said, she was a scout and a spy, and she got the word up and down the Tiger River to the different families when they heard, like when the Battle of Musgrove Mill was going on, when that kind of thing. She got the word to the Spartan Militia. That was, uh, the Spartan Militia went down to that particular event. Andrew Berry was wounded at that particular battle there at Musgrove Mill. And she was also the one that sent them to the Battle of Calpians as in 1781 with uh, that defeat. So, well, let me ask you this. Uh, what draws you to the stories that you write? I mean, you talked a little bit about them being women and that sort of thing. Is that the only thing that draws you? Because there's women all in the backcountry. Why? Why these particular women? I think one thing is that her house is still standing and I could walk in her house. Same thing with Martha Bratton. I could walk in her house and see where she stood, see where she cooked, see where she lived. And that to me, the sense of place, the sense of place and walking and being where she was did something to me. It, it just, I, and I've been to Middleton Place, I've been to all those in the Low Country, Drayton Hall and all those, but I live here in Spartanburg. This, this happened right close to me. This is my home. And that was their home. And it's just right here. And it's, there's a connect. Yeah, yeah. 
I think it's not just you that connects with this. I think there's a, a vast audience out there that can connect to that and connect to that inner drive that we all have to be free. Exactly. Right? Exactly. How can they get your book? Well, they're av it's available on Amazon. It's available at uh, Barnes & Noble. The Barnes & Noble, in fact, in Williamsburg carries this book. It's available in various bookstores. So it's, it's out there. Uh, Google it. Google it. See what it comes up with. And if they Googled your name, they would find a whole slew of books that you have written over the last... 13, 13 years. years, yes. Wow. Yes. So, and, and Courageous Kate is one of them, and you have uh, Brave Elizabeth, uh, that's Elizabeth Jackson. Right. And then Fearless Martha, right. which is Martha Bratton, who you talked a little bit about. Those are those are the big three, but you have plenty of others, and you have been working with the 250th Commission here in South Carolina to write some articles about some others. That you that's right. Who were, who were those? Jane Black Thomas is one of them. Uh, that's available at the uh, 250 website, and also one on Elizabeth Jackson for them. Wow, wow, that's fantastic. So I gotta ask you this, what does liberty mean to you, Sheila? America, that's just very- Are you simple. wrapping yourself in this American flag, Sheila? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Mean? Um, this is the only country in the world that was founded by people that were looking to not take something, but to build something. Build something for themselves, build something for their children, build something for their neighbors. It, um, there's, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. There's something about those words, could be the, the military family that I come from, my dad, the greatest generation, World War II, General Patton, he worked under him, my brothers, uncles. I grew up in a family that believed in America, that believed in fighting for America and um, put their money where their mouths were uh, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. My, one of my patriots um, was taken captive at the Battle of Waxhaws, as a matter of fact, Thomas Davis. He was able to get uh, away from his captors in just a few days and rejoin uh, another group from Virginia. But the fact that his name is over there on that uh, piece of mortar that talks, has the list of the Patriots, of the Whigs that fought in that particular battle. And when I read about that battle and what Tartlin and his men did at that battle too, that Virginia company, it um, it just wasn't nice. It just, and I know war is not nice. And this country is important to me. It really, really is. And when I pledge allegiance to the flag. Those words mean something to me. Well, thank you so much.